Tom Penneau is the head of medicinal chemistry at Concept Life Science, and today we're going to talk about virtual screening for drug discovery and AI. Tom, welcome to CC Life Science. Hi, Chris. Uh, thank you very much. It's, it's great, uh, great to be talking to you, and thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. So uh, I want to start a little bit. Just tell us how you got into this field before we get into the nitty-gritty of the science. Oh yeah, so I um, actually started as a as a, uh, a synthetic chemist uh, back in France. You may by, you may tell by my accent that I'm actually French, even though I live in the UK now. Uh, and uh, I, I just uh, got uh, interested. I was initially interested in sort of uh, um, working in you know as a, as a GP, as we say, in hospital things like that. But I thought uh, my uh, scientific skills were better suited to discovering drugs. So I, I sort of uh, drifted towards this field quite early in my career, and I've stayed in in, uh, in medicine, chemistry, and drug discovery ever since. Nice. All right, so let's talk about drug discovery broadly, and then the virtual screening. With describe the basic process, starting with a target molecule. Of course, if you're looking for a drug, presumably there's a thing you're trying to create a therapy for, right? Yeah, no, yeah, that's right. So um, I, I guess maybe a, a first up might need to put virtual screening in context in terms of where it is on, on the drug yeah. discovery uh, sort of uh, a process. So I guess, as you say, initially, we, we need to, uh, we need to figure out uh, or to, to um, identify biological targets, which we need to, to interact with. And eventually, I guess, a biologist, my biologist colleague, pharmacologist, pharmacologist colleagues will identify these targets and then, um, you know, demonstrate that by um, uh, modulating this target, then this elicits uh, a pharmacological response, which hopefully will help treat a, a disease or at least uh, alleviate some of the symptoms. Um, so really, that's, you know, the first part is, first part is not identifying this target. Once we have identified this target, as you're saying, is you know that that key uh, molecule, this key start point for a drug discovery process, which is the what we call heta identification, and that's that's critical to a drug discovery process. This this stage because the quality of the hits will have a huge impact on how quickly we can then optimize this hit, turn it into a clinical candidate, and eventually uh, develop uh, medicines for for you know uh, for patients to use. Um, so that heat identification process, it's typically, uh, historically, it's been, done, it's been done in vitro using high-throughput screening. Um, I'm sure you'll be familiar with that. It's, it, high-throughput screening is just uh, taking a compound collection um, that you may have at the back of your lab uh, for those who have access to that, which is a point we can discuss later on, I suppose. So a real compound collection, you test those compounds in real in vitro assays, you have real in vitro hits, and that's your style point for your drug discovery campaign. But um, that's not accessible to everybody, uh, high throughput screen, uh, screening, yeah, because you need to have access to that compound collection. You're talking millions of compounds, not everyone has access to that. Um, and, and Can also I ask you a question yeah. about that? Sure. So we've I've done some episodes on high throughput screening, and those are the ones that are done visually by you know lots of high resolution imaging, watching cells. Are there there must be alternatives to that when you say in vitro 
assays, maybe biochemical assays produced mm -hmm. in thousands of wells where the analytes then go through some process and we say, this changed because we think we have a hit. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you don't necessarily need to have fancy imaging and things like that. Quite often, you actually have quite basic in vitro assay uh, that uh, is sufficient to give you a, a confidence that uh, you, you're actually modulating that target. Um, but that, that's all done. That's all done in 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 labs in real terms. And that's, as I said, that's very expensive. You need loads of fancy robotics for that. Uh, uh, which a lot of companies, a lot of uh, charities who may want to do this kind of work, uh, a lot of uh, um, academy labs don't have access to. So yeah. I guess that's that's the the, the sort of um, rationale for virtual screening, which is what about trying to do that using computers? Uh, they, they're getting uh, increasingly powerful at um, uh, predicting things, computers and all software. So. Um, I guess it, it dates back from 20, 30 years ago, I would say, where it was first uh, postulated that maybe we could, instead of in the process in vitro, can we do it in silico? Can we do that using computers? And so then the, the paradigm sort of turns into not having a real compound collection in the lab, but having a database in the computer. Uh, and that database can be as big as you want it to be, really, providing you can make those molecules um, so whilst for in vitro high-throughput screening, we're talking about millions of compounds, if we're big scale already. Uh, virtual screening, we're talking tens of billions of compounds. I think that the largest collection uh, that I'm aware of that's commercial is 36 billion compounds. So like four orders of magnitude greater. So that's that's massive difference. Um, and obviously we, we also need to have, uh, so we have that, compound database, but we also need to have a model that sort of recapitulates what's happening in vitro. And uh, so the, we need to be able to build this in silico model that uh, essentially allows us to triage compounds. So a typical in silico model can be, um, for instance, uh, a protein structure, which has been determined by X-ray or cryo-EM. So we have the structure of the protein. And essentially what we do by virtual screening is we virtually, we take every single molecule, we try to see if it fits nicely in the, on the computer model in the binding pocket. If it does, that's uh, a high scoring compound. There'll be a virtual hit. If it doesn't, that's uh, something which we, we can sort of uh, disregard. And that becomes very much of a needle in a haystack process where the haystack is very, very big. And we need to identify those little gems, those little needles, and we need sort of uh, clever computers to do that. Um, so I guess at the moment I haven't talked about AI though. Well, well, what AI was doing around that because I just discussed the, the overall process. I don't know if I have. Yeah, um, can I, I have some around. questions about that though. So, um, a couple things. One, you know, billions of compounds, and you said need to be able to make them. Certainly. Mm -hmm. Some of those we don't know yet, right? That's right. So, right. yeah, so, yeah, so many of those compounds. So, I'd say physically present compounds that exist, I suppose, somewhere in the world, you may have up to 100 million, I'd say, maximum. Uh, and uh, these are tiny quantities of compounds that have been made by labs. I guess it was in the heydays of uh, Combichem, which is combinatorial chemistry, where the the uh, in in twenty thirty years ago it was the big trend to actually 
make as many compounds as you, as you can in parallel. Uh, but nowadays, those virtual collections actually contain many compounds which are not physically made anywhere on Earth, but right. we know we can make them quickly. So we oh, know okay. that we have all the building blocks to make them, and in two or three chemical steps, they can be generated. Uh, and that's we have several companies uh, that that can that can offer that. And essentially, making them takes pretty much as long as getting them shipped from one place to the other. If you see, I mean, it, you're talking a few weeks, I suppose. Um, so that's that's the way we've really expanded that that virtual stuff, commercial database, uh, and that's. Expansion keeps on, on on growing, I suppose. So that's the reason okay. why we can have this database of so many compounds. They don't really exist. We can we can so, make, make yeah, them. But that's that's still stunning to me. One that you know they can be made and in two or three steps, which is stunning to me to get to that number of possible compounds. So yeah. then my next question is, you know, from my biochemistry background, I'm thinking. Of course, we're thinking about what binds in a pocket, and it's still amazing to me that there are that many variables that you could test, or maybe you should only find a few. But what about, it seemed to me that there were places that a molecule might bind elsewhere on a protein that would affect its activity. Mm-hmm. So is that yeah. part of the screen? Yes, the- yeah, yeah, that's right. So, in in um, there are two different ways of of screening. There's uh, a, a ligand-based way and a structure-based way. I've, I've mostly described the structure-based way because I think it's where AI can have most of the impact in the future, I suppose. Um, but yeah, in in the virtual screening process that structure-based, you decide. So, there are several algorithms actually. There are AI algorithms that help you identify binding pockets. So you have uh, algorithms where you have your, your protein structure and the algorithm will just try to make the small molecule bind anywhere it can. It'll calculate the energy associated with it and it'll tell us where it's likely to bind here, it's likely to bind somewhere else, it's likely to bind the third position and that's the energy associated with it. So we can actually identify new binding sites which may be interesting for uh, as you say, you know, depending on which binding site you'll interact with, you'll, you may have different pharmacology. Uh, you know, they've been very famous yeah. for um, GPCR, for instance, a class of uh, protein targets where depending on where you bind, you have different illicit, you'll elicit different pharmacology. Um, so yeah, there certainly are processes for that. So when you say binding pocket, you're not always talking about the active site. It can be anywhere mm-hmm. in yeah, a so compound could bind. And yes, have some effect on the structure. That's right. So I guess historically we've um, tried to find molecules which bind the, 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 the active side because we're trying to prevent the protein from doing its its business. Um, but uh, for instance, there are new therapeutic modalities like Protax nowadays where we don't don't necessarily need to bind the active side, we just need to bind somewhere on the protein and have an anchor to sort of... Uh, uh, make stuff something else happen happen to the protein. Um, so yeah, we have there are various software that have very been recently uh, very recently been developed to uh, to help with that. All right, so now continue. We're going to go into the AI part. I mean, what else do we need to know about that? Yeah, so I guess if I go back to the the, the virtual screening process, the, that's you know. 
fitting that small molecule in a binding pocket. Um, the, the, um, the traditional way of doing it, if you actually take every single molecule one by one, that's called brute force virtual screening. And it's essentially, you know, you, you sort of screen every single one of them. The problem with doing that is that um, if we do that using fancy model like um, um, structure-based type model, then we don't really have, you need very high computing power to be able to do that. So essentially, um, when you try to screen billions of compounds virtually, and if you use a, a fancy predictive model, uh, the problem is that if you really want to be able to, to, uh, to do that on so many compounds, um, then you kind of need to have access to superclusters. Uh, so very fancy computers with tens of thousands of CPUs, uh, fancy GPUs and so on, which in the end means that, um, you know, it's still not accessible to many people because not many, many companies will have access to these kind of superclusters and they're, they're very expensive. Yeah. So that's where AI comes in, really. They, when you embed AI in a virtual screening process, then it accelerates the whole process. Uh, so that's, that's one key way that AI can have an impact on virtual screening is by accelerating the process. And essentially, you can accelerate it by a hundredfold, a thousandfold, uh, by just not sort of doing not running every single molecule, but more being able to uh, build an algorithm and a model that predicts which are going to be the best molecules rather than actually do, run the calculations. Uh, and that's one of the examples of what we use in our labs, for instance. And that means that because you're accelerating the process by a hundredfold, a thousandfold, then you don't need 10,000 CPUs, but you need 12 CPUs. And then you can run, you can stream billions of compounds using, you know, average Joe's computer, uh, and get that done in, in a week. Uh, so that's really one of the aspects where AI is having a huge impact on, on virtual screening. It, it means that even for huge collections, then it's, this process is accessible to small biotechs, to everybody. Yeah. So. And we talked about this a little bit before. So you're talking about essentially a gaming computer or even something less powerful? Yeah. I mean, you know, most, most machines now, I guess the, uh, even though the, the internet is not great on my laptop at the moment, I think it's just got 12, 12 CPUs and, uh, and it's got a good graphics card, but that's pretty much all you need. So, um, yeah, a, a gaming machine, uh, which has the, 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 Ability to deal with with this kind of um, calculations is just ideal, and then it's, it's it really makes it accessible to everybody. Um, so so that's really one of the ways that AI and machine learning is impacting virtual screening. The other way is by building models which are better predictions, um, and I guess there's a lot in in this field around that. Uh, that's still quite new, but uh, certainly something that's quite promising in the future as well. Talk a little bit about those better predictions. I mean, um, based on past successes, it, it, it learns that, okay, that, I mean, and when you say better predictions, you mean 
um, the model works better or um, in terms of theoretical binding or an actual better prediction like that thing works or is a very good candidate? Yeah, so one of the problems with virtual screening is this, that there are loads of false positives uh, because there are loads of ways a molecule could bind a, a protein uh, target. And many of those are completely irrelevant because the, 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 the model we have is, 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 is irrelevant. So, um, I guess here, um, the, the impact of AI is that it can use a lot of the data that is accessible across, uh, across the world, really in terms of, uh, the small molecules, their properties. Uh, and then, uh, what these properties sort of, uh, uh, infer in terms of their biological activity, in terms of their pharmacokinetic, uh, parameters and things like that. Um, so there are algorithms which can make sense of all of these data and provide better predictors and better ways of discriminating whether a small molecule from that giant database is, uh, indeed a, a, a real hit rather than uh, just some um, some molecule we're not really interested in. So it's a better ability in discriminating what's good from what's not good. So finding this, these needles, these key needles in the haystack, um, that there's a lot on that, uh, which which uh, is uh, is being developed with machine learning at the moment. So it sounds like based on known structures that are approved drugs and have properties that we understand pretty well, the more similar to that in some way. Is that right? Is my That's right, yeah, yeah. That that's exactly right. So what's what's a molecule uh that modulates the target typically typically looks like uh what are its its properties uh and the machine learning algorithms will get that from existing data that is available uh um, on um, sort of from various databases, which anyone can access. So once you get a, a, we narrowed down the candidates to some reasonable number, I don't know whether that's three or a dozen or 50, how, what's the procedure from there? How we start making them? Yeah, yeah, so uh, that's, yeah, that's very important because after virtual screening, you have virtual hits. And we're not making virtual medicines. <laughs> we're trying to make a, an actual bill. Um, so after, so the virtual screening will allow us to triage compounds based on what we think is most likely to be a, a, a good modulator of the target of interest. But um, there are, so, and here we're typically looking at maybe 500 to 1,000 molecules, but then we okay. need subsequent, subsequent triage to, to take place to make sure that the molecule is likely to be soluble, the molecule is likely to be, um, you know, stable to all of the enzymes in your body. They'll be able, if you're looking at a, a CNS indication, they can cross the brain barrier. Uh, so we have lots of predictors as well. Many of them actually based on AI algorithms and machine learning algorithms themselves that allow us to further triage those compounds to, I'd say, between 50 and 100. One, once we have about 50, 100 compounds, which we think are likely to modulate the target and have good ADME properties, then we typically either purchase, purchase them or we synthesize them. Um, and, and then we have to confirm them 
in vitro, so we still have to run them through an in vitro assay. But obviously, compared to a high throughput screening, we only have 50 compounds to screen. We don't have 1 million. So the cost is, is minimal compared to high throughput screening. Right. So, I mean, I'm going to get to this sooner or later. So I'm going to ask like, what this came up on Twitter for me a couple of weeks ago, somebody got nominated as, um, I don't know, a top 50 person in AI drug discovery. I think it was. And I asked, and, and th this person, and I can't remember exactly who it was. I could take a guess, but I don't want to be wrong. Um, this person said, I don't even know how I got on this list. And I asked, seriously, are there any drugs yet approved that have been discovered in this way? And then I realized the testing process is long enough that depending on how long we've been trying virtual discovery, we wouldn't even know yet. But are there molecules in a pipeline that are progressing reasonably, I guess? My question was, how many? So... Yeah, so in terms of, uh, I guess, virtual screening, there's quite a few examples of molecules that have progressed with, with virtual screening uh, for, for HIV, for cancer, and so on. In terms of, you, you're perfectly right in terms of uh, uh, seeing the, the fruit of, of AI and its impact on virtual screening. I think it's still early days. Um, many of the algorithms we use in our labs uh, have been developed in 2021, 2022. So obviously, we, it's just a very early stage of the drug discovery process. So um, uh, there are, I think, some compounds in the clinic that were uh, um, discovered with some AI involved. Uh, but, um, but yeah, this is still very early days. So uh, uh, we, we'll need to wait a few more years to see w whether this impact is... Uh, is um, a paradigm shifting, or if it's just an additional tool to, to what we're trying to do in drug discovery. My, my guess is going to be paradigm shifting, but uh, we'll see. I like that answer. Like, it either makes a big difference or it's one more tool we don't know yet. You think it's going to be make a big difference. I'm curious also on the other side of that, given all this computational power and the billions of compounds we could choose from, does this possibly, or one, what is the biggest bottleneck in discovery now? And could this possibly increase it where, I guess, we're screening fewer, but maybe there's going to be a, a wave or a large increase in the number of candidates going to the clinic because discovery has become, I hate to use the word easier, but that's sort of what we're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, so I guess, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a medicinal chemist myself, but from an computational chemist, but from what I can see really that I guess a lot of AI scientists will say that the problem is, is data. Uh, I think, I think we actually have access to quite a lot of data for, for virtual screening and for drug discovery through, um, the various databases, which are freely uh, available. The problem is we have a lot of positive data points. Negative data points are not necessarily as um, uh, sort of available uh, because we don't tend to publish negative data, even though there are some journals that do that. Um, and the problem is to build uh, and test and validate machine learning model or any model. Uh, you need to have positive and negative data. Yeah. So I'd say 
obviously data is going to be a problem. And I would argue that maybe the more, the, maybe the greatest problem to AI is AI itself in a sense that, um, there's been, for instance, recent reports that, uh, highlight the fact, um, there are many, uh, papers that are impossible to uh, replicate. You know, that's quite a common thing in, in, in biology that you have the latest nature paper and it looks all lovely, but when you have three labs that independently, independently try to, uh, to repeat that, then we can't. So what do we do with this data? Uh, and the other thing is, and that's where AI is a problem really, is that there are loads of uh, AI algorithms that are used to produce data out of nothing. Uh, and that's just to generate papers. And that's, and that's true across the world. There's been recent reports about that. So there's fake data lurking everywhere that has just been published, um, to, to generate papers. Uh, and these were published by, you know, these were generated by AI. Those papers were fully written by AI or at least partly written by AI. So in a way, AI becomes the problem of it, you know, its own problem because then it generates data that will be fed into the model. And then we'll sort of, uh, uh, make the models less, uh, um, sort of, uh, powerful and less predictive because it's been fed with wrong, uh, sort of false data. So that's one thing maybe that uh, I guess, uh, will be interesting to keep an eye on for AI and machine learning in the future is, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that, uh, uh, data needs to be created, uh, and we need to make sure that there's a uh, ground truth to the data that's input in uh, building the algorithms. Yeah, that's, I mean, I didn't even think about misinformation at the level of scientific data. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Unfortunately, um, it happens, yes. Yeah, and I'm just thinking, I mean, hopefully, and I'm out of the lab, but the level of automation increasing, because I imagine that, let's t talk about the data that's not replicable, but is, you know, published honestly, let's say that, um, you know, there's all the, the manual things that don't get written down in a lab notebook about how something was done and the very, just the natural human variability. Right. So, um, you know, as automation becomes more available and used more often, hopefully some of that goes away at least, but yeah, yeah, hopefully. And uh, the negative data problem is a challenge that, that has come up on the podcast before. So it there will be a lot of effort, sadly, you know, wasted by every company, you know, because they don't have the negative data. If there was a way to share that, um, then we could make a little more progress faster, I would think. Yeah, and then the problem becomes again, you know, is data negative because it's, there are very, many different ways of running assays. So as as you were exactly saying, you know, something that may be negative in one lab may be positive because we use a a trace buffer as opposed to a Hibbs buffer. Um, so uh, so yeah, it's it's difficult to make sense of all that data. Yeah, is there anything? I mean, this is my last question. I yeah, I want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything? Um, so a lot of trials fail related to ADME challenges. Are we missing something in the biology or something else? Um, what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, um, you, you, you're very right in the sense that in, um, in terms of, uh, of, uh, 
trials, I guess, the, the two main issues, I suppose, are uh, efficacy and, and safety. Uh, and that may has an impact on both efficacy and safety. So efficacy, I guess, you know, to have efficacy, you need to have potent compounds, but you need to have enough on board to actually uh, elicit the pharmacological response. Um, and sometimes we could predict the, 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 um, the potency, but we did not predict really well the, the pharmacokinetic profile and uh, you know, that, that, that becomes a, a key problem. Um, but again, there are loads of, uh, of, um, of, um, uh, software, loads of, uh, um, algorithms that help sort of predict these ADME parameters. Uh, and same for, for toxicology, there's loads of, uh, loads happening in the, in the, in AI in that field. Um, but I suppose, and I, I was just thinking about that, I suppose one, one problem is, uh, with all the whole gastro discovery process is that, uh, in the end, what we're trying to achieve is, um, you know, getting a compound that will, um, um cure a, a, a disease, I suppose. And, and for that, you need to have a compound that's of, uh, you absorb the pill, it goes into your stomach and dissolves, and then it gets into your, your, goes through your gut, gets into your bloodstream. And maybe if you're talking about a CNS disease, like your uh, degeneration, it has to cross the blood brain barrier. It has to go in the in the brain, maybe in the right part of the brain, and then it has to reach the right uh, protein targets uh, in the cell and things like that. It's a very complex problem, and we're trying to to sort of model that with simpler uh, simpler sort of models. Or I guess we have an animal model that tries to recapitulate that and translate into that and then it's 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 complex to do that so if you want to screen lots of molecules then we need to go a cell model into biochem model and then eventually you know we have this virtual screening model but what sort of information do we lose from the virtual screening into um into what's happening really in the patient uh, i think ai is actually inputting in lots of those different steps but uh I think if, if we had AI, uh, models that could, uh, uh, as a consensus sort of, uh, uh, try to address loads of these parameters all together, including unmet challenges, uh, then obviously we'd, you know, we'd be in a, in a much, much stronger position to, um, to accelerate the drug discovery process. Um, so I can see at the moment that there's loads of little, uh, uh, sort of, uh, Algorithms that are published for each individual step to, to address ADME, to address potency, to address the uh, and later in the clinic. I think one thing that will be interesting to see for, for AI in the future is how all of that can be brought together into a, a comprehensive approach to drug discovery. And I think that's quite, quite a long way to go there. Uh, but hopefully it's maybe by this consensus approach and this comprehensive approach that we can address some of those more complex challenges like ADME and, and, and safety um, and the overall drug discovery process. Again, a, a long way to go, but uh, uh, hopefully something we can, we can do by uh, working better with machine learning uh, scientists and bring them to the drug discovery team uh, as, as an integral part of the, the drug discovery sort of Venn diagram of, of uh, contributors. I think that's going to be one key in, in the future to, to try and address those uh, clinical failures yeah um it just brings to mind maybe i'm 
I'm going out on a limb here, but I mean, first of all, a lot of things have to go right for a drug to work, right? Get in, as you say, not be toxic, bind to the right place, all those things, not be um, disposed of. And then I'm thinking on the other side of that, you know, these proteins, one, the interactions are complex inside of, of an animal, and they, these proteins have evolved to do a job over a long, long period of time. And in many cases, maybe it's harder to stop them doing that than we imagine from early successes in drug development. So maybe we found a few easy ones that you can bind and stop and no big deal. But now we're getting to the place where we're trying to interrupt more complex processes. Yes, that's right. Uh, I guess uh, not too long ago it was uh, we were talking about the undruggable, and now we 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 edging towards the difficult to drug, uh, which <laughs> is a, a very a very uh, big step forward. But yes, you have uh, now now we need to tackle the more difficult, more challenging targets. Um, and you know, for instance, uh, it's an interesting example of that. There's been tremendous success with uh, this um, what was deemed to be undruggable not so long ago. Um, so. Yeah, there, there's a lot happening in this field, uh, and there's there are many then many many new uh, biological targets to to tackle and uh, offering new um, avenues for for new therapeutic in, um, sort of uh, uh, medications and um, new therapeutics for patients. That's a perfect cliffhanger. I'm gonna leave it there so we can do another episode. Uh, Tom Pinot, thank you so much. This has been a blast talking to you. I learned a lot. I'm sure everyone listening did as well. So thank you for your time. Thanks, Chris. My pleasure.